gentle listener, you're listening to Michael and Ethan in a room with scotch. However, what you're about to hear is a a little bit of a different episode. We're still talking about books. Michael, me, and Ethan are joined by our friend Josiah to discuss the first book in the Freddy the Pig series by Walter R. Brooks, Freddy Goes to Florida. And this also serves as the first episode in a brand new podcast on the Tapestry Radio Network called Freddy Goes to a Podcast. Uh, So you can find this episode and all the subsequent episodes in which we are going to cover all 26 books in the Freddy the Pig series on Freddy Goes to a Podcast. And the website for that is tapestryradio.org slash Freddy. Uh, So check it out there. Listen to this episode and every subsequent episode on the kids' book series, Freddy the Pig. Thank you very much and enjoy. Oh, a life of adventure is gay and free, and danger has its charm. And no pig of spirit will bound his life by the fence of his master's farm. Yet there's no true pig but heaves a sigh at the pleasant thought of the old home sky. But when tires at last of wandering, and the road grows steep and long, a treadmill round where no if one follows it over long. And however they wander, both pigs and men are always glad to get home again. Hello, everybody. This is Josiah Willits. And on this podcast, we're going to be talking about Freddy. And Freddy's going to go places. In particular, in this episode, he's going to Florida. But before we get ahead of ourselves, how about we introduce each other? As I just said, I'm Josiah Willits in uh, all redundancy. And who's up next? I'm Michael Lilienthal. And I'm Ethan Bartlett. You may recognize Michael and me from Michael and Ethan in a room with scotch. Or you might not. Yeah, and you definitely don't recognize me unless you saw that one episode. Yeah, that a lot of people episode. saw that episode. And we're not going to reference it at all. We're just going to leave it at that one episode. <laughs> it's that one. <laughs> yep. Yeah, well, that's if, if anyone is listening to this first, then they have to go through all of Michael and Ethan's backlog. It's, it's a cross-promoting thing. It's, it's a thing I, I learned about. On I mean, in all fairness, in our book, then, I mean, references are made all over the place to things that never followed up on. So, I mean, there is that. <laughs> That is true. What book are we are we talking about, Josiah? What book are we talking about? We're talking about Freddy Goes to Florida. It's by Walter R. Brooks. And we were turned on to this book by you, Ethan. Talk to us a little bit about this. Um all right. We'll call this Ethan's Nostalgia Corner. Um because the the uh I, I, I guess conception for this podcast came about when the three of us um I guess a few weeks before the the time of this recording, were just on a Zoom call, and I believe we were talking about like Charlotte's Web and Stuart Little and some. Other oh yeah, we were talking Evie White. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, like classic children's um, stuff. 
And in that in that context, I asked you guys if you had ever uh, read or heard of the Freddy books, um, which neither of you had. And then I, I like briefed you on them because these these books these are this is a series of books by Walter R. Brooks. Um, the first one, and I'm not trying to step on Michael's toes, but the first one came out in the 1920s, and then it ran to 26 or 27 books total. Uh, the last one being from like the 50s, I want to say. And they're all about this group of talking animals um, mm-hmm. that have various adventures. This led us to sort of look up plot summaries and stuff for um, the series as a whole, some of the books in the series. Uh, and um, turns out, especially some of the later plot summaries, read as pretty insane. <laughs> um, and that inspired us to want to to uh, investigate this further. So uh, for me, this is an interesting sort of a a full life circle moment, I guess, Um, because I did read these books when I was sort of the intended audience for them. Um, I was a maniac for checking out books on tape. You were a child in the 1920s? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh, This is not a podcast about me being a vampire. That's that's a whole other other thing. Um, But so uh, when I was a child in the 1920s, I was a maniac for books on tape. Um, which for anyone born not in this century, or for anyone born in this century, rather, um, there was this thing called cassette tapes, uh, which were like MP3s, but physical and bad. I can't get Um, away from it. And sometimes you had to fix them with a pen. Uh, But people would read (laughs) books onto these (laughs) tapes. And, How are we um, circling back to stick from your other podcast? <laughs> <laughs> no, this is real. This is actually a thing. So my, my library growing up had like a huge section of these these books on on tape. Um, and one of the ones that I just grabbed randomly was the third book in the Freddy series called Freddy the Detective. And um, that was my introduction to the series. And when we get there, I'm going to probably remember like word for word like how the narrator narrated um Mm, that book mm -hmm. because i listened to it a ton of times um but that was my jumping off point for uh reading other books in the series and i certainly did not read all of the books in the series um and as with many you know memories from ages like 11 12 13 or so i don't remember exactly how many how many of these books i read nor exactly which ones for sure um But I definitely know that I read Freddy Goes to Florida, and I think I was pretty disappointed in it. Um, <laughs> I, I remember, as I was reading it for this show, I, I remember, like, bits and pieces of it, but it was just, it wasn't, like, and I think I know what it was, because Freddy the Detective really, like, works as a detective novel. Uh, there's your there's your little teaser for uh, when we get there. Um as I remember, you know, there's a real mystery and stuff. And this book just seemed like a mess at the time. Um, yeah, well, I mean, this um, kind of going back to what you were talking about with when we were having our conversation about E.B. White, I remember making the observation that Stuart Little is very episodic. Chapter mm-hmm. by chapter is its own isolated thing. And yeah. this book is very much like that. Yeah, and I think mm-hmm. as a hypercritical... 12 year old child 
Um, I did not like that. I, I, I thought I felt betrayed. Like I thought I felt like if you wanted to write a book of short stories, you shouldn't call it Freddy goes to Florida. Um, and especially, and we can talk about this more later. Like Freddy's not in it that much. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so, and, and I anyway. mean, Michael, you That's were the like, historian on this one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, just, just to, to conclude, that's what I remember nostalgia wise about Freddy goes to Florida. It was like, it kept me entertained on a couple sun, summer afternoons, but I think I actually liked it much less when I was the target audience for it <laughs> than I did this read through of it. And yeah, this has yeah. been Ethan's nostalgia corner. Well, and I mean, why I reference Michael, um, thank you, Ethan, by the way. Sorry to step on your toes toward the end there. Uh, I mean, they're they're used to it. They're I used to it. They're a good dancer. Mm-hmm. Don't tell her I said that. Mm. <laughs> uh, well, she doesn't know by now. Um, <laughs> um, but I mean, why I, why I reference um, the history of it, I mean, Freddie goes to Florida isn't actually the original title, is it, Michael? No, it is not. I'll, I'll step into the historical background here now um, that uh, Freddie Goes to Florida, uh, as you said, Ethan. into the background? I'm going to step into the background. Oh. <laughs> is, uh, <laughs> as I, as I yeah. take the, the center stage, I'm going to step into the background. Um, Don't worry, I'll start stabbing <laughs> at all the heiresses. Good. Yes, Freddie Goes to Florida. It's the first uh, in the series of 26 books by Walter R. Brooks. Uh, Walter Roland Brooks is his middle name. Uh, and the series would later be known as the Freddy the Pig series. Um, originally, though, when it was published in 1927, uh, the publisher was Alfred A. Knopf. It was uh, the title was Two and Again, and you can see that on your uh, title page too. That it'll say originally published under the title of Two and Again. But then it was in 1949, 22 years later, that it was reissued as both both Freddy Goes to Florida. And Freddy's First Adventure, you'd find you'd find both of them, oh. both of those titles there, and that was after 16 books uh, composed the Freddy series uh, that it was retitled. So the the Freddy series was not necessarily in the the author's or the publisher's mind when this one was was made. So that kind of explains why Freddy isn't in it quite as much. Um, a little bit more as for the author's personal life, he had studied medicine for two years, but then dropped out. After that, he worked for an advertising company until leaving after receiving a sizable inheritance. And after this, he worked for the Red Cross and for several magazines. And during this time, he began writing more in earnest. And as far as I can tell, Two and Again is his first major publication, even though Wikipedia tells me that he published several poems and short stories earlier in his career. I can't find any of those extant, however. Uh, this seems to be the first thing. Um Worldwide, this year, the year of this book's publication, uh, there was a lot of travel in world events. The Spirit of St. Louis made the first solo nonstop transatlantic flight in May of 1927. In May the previous year, the Josephine Ford monoplane was claimed by her pilots to have flown over the North Pole, the first plane to do that. The Harlem Globetrotters also began their roadshow early in 1927. And around this time, also Al Capone was at the height of his power and influence. So who knows what uh, of these events informed the events in Freddy Goes to Florida and the subsequent books. Here ends the historical background. I mean, it could be the whole the whole flight over the North Pole, Spirit of St. Louis thing, but I'm going to assume that uh, the whole thing where all of the animals become an outlaw gang briefly and start <laughs> like 
holding up automobiles on the on the country highways might be related to that thing. <laughs> Probably, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Freddy was, you know, just incarnate Al Capone. I'm, I mean, just that, that seems like a real makes strong a lot reading. of sense. <laughs> makes seems a lot of like sense. Like something we could we could unpack. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Yes. Um, as far as as far as historical context and everything, I. I mean, I I saw that it was published in the later twenties, um, before before the you know uh, Wall Street crash and everything like that. But mm-hmm. um, but I mean, the elements of like any hint of it being like the Roaring Twenties or anything like that, you don't find any of that in the book. It no, seems very it seems very much isolated and um, and in and in and in it being that it. Lends it, I'm very good with words. Um, in in doing so, it lends itself very well to you know being a children's book that you know endures for a while because it's definitely not hinged in just the twenties. In so far as I mean certain things, like I mean the fact that I mean some people are still using horses and some people are mm-hmm. using cars, and which is very very much real for uh, sort of rural life in the twenties. You know, there's there's always that sort of lag in technology and um, mm-hmm. the the rural. As this book is obviously a monument of realism, um, mm-hmm. the, the rural settings of this book are actually pretty pretty realistic as far as like there being phaetons and and other horse drawn um, right equipment around that that would not look mm-hmm. nearly as weird as it you know would to those of us raised outside of Amish country today. Um, be much more normal. Yeah. Oh, and also, the the U.S. president at this time was Calvin Coolidge. Yes, yes, and I mean <laughs> that was one of the things that when I when we got to that chapter, then as I was reading, I was like, now Coolidge was the president at this time, and even even with that, it's you could very easily put any president in. I mean, the spot of this president. There's nothing like political or characteristic that he tries poking fun at or anything like that. Apart from, you know, um, the speech that he gives that the animals forget right away. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Which which that's the the thing that comes up throughout the course of the book. Oratory is all over the place in this book. Mm -hmm. And half the time, it's like, that sounded so good and I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Um, the, uh, the important politics in this book are the inter-animal politics. It's true. Um, so true. really, it's just Walter Brooks sort of putting the emphasis where the emphasis belongs. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I mean, he very mm-hmm. easily could have, you know, taken the time to poke fun at that. But again, where the fun is placed is, like you said, in the interpersonal relationships with the animals. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to say about the Roaring Twenties, and here I am, I'm, I'm just standing on your toes at this point, Michael, but... That's all right. Um, there, uh, partly, I, I read a book several years ago called Only Yesterday, which was written, it was a history of the Twenties written in the year 1930 by, like, a, a magazine uh, editor for Harper's or one of the big magazines at the time. Um, so the you know history of the twenties like like from right in front of them, um, and he he pointed out that like what we what we think of as the Roaring Twenties was really a very urban um, thing. All oh yes, the jazz parties and the flappers and the and the uh, um, 
booze. Um, and I think I sound like an 80 year old in the twenties right now, but, um, you know, the, the pot and all of that stuff that was happening, uh, it, it was really very urban and Walter Brooks, you know, perhaps on purpose or perhaps not, uh, in targeting sort of a, a, a children's audience, he keeps his, his settings very rural, uh, possibly specifically to avoid controversy, um, to avoid touching on some of those, you know, more, uh, socially sort of, uh, controversial points. But, and I think this came up when we were talking about like Charlotte's web, um, and such, uh, in sort of the, the lost original episode of this podcast that no one recorded. Um, <laughs> the idea that like farms, like stories set on farms, maybe have a certain amount of endurance, um, built into them because farms don't change that much. Oh, sure. Like, mm-hmm. You know, yeah, like, uh, uh, there there are tractors now that have, like, air conditioning and Bluetooth hookups, and, and maybe farmers from 50 years ago would, would uh, have some aspersions to cast on that, but at the same time, like, you, the tractor is still recognizable 50, from 50 years ago or even from 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Brooks may have been very clever... Also, in that way, just, like, finding his way to a timeless sort of setting. Well, we've already started talking a little bit about what's going on in this book. I'm more or less tasked with kind of walking us through the plot. But since we all read this for this podcast, Mm -hmm. um, I'll kind of just facilitate as we go through. Um, Yeah. So so you had to... I'm I'm interested, Josiah. Like, if you had to sort of encapsulate this plot in a few sentences um, for someone who hadn't read the book, how would you do it? Mm, so, in like, a this few is, sentences for somebody that hadn't read the book. Because um, this is your chat. Like, this was your sort of task. Your your homework. Task, <laughs> oh. oh, are you trying to say that I didn't do my homework, Ethan? <laughs> no, I'm just saying that like. Michael did some historical research, and I like dredged up some of the ghosts of my childhood oh. at great personal cost. So um, we need. I, to make I could see like tears rolling well. down your face as you were recalling some of these things. Yeah, um, mostly how, <laughs> how cassette tapes work was just like extremely. <laughs> yeah, dry. there were a lot of tears over cassette tapes. That is true. <laughs> that, that is true. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, if you were to sum it up, I mean, the original title, To and Again, very much gets at the dynamic of the book because it's it's very straightforward. They take the trip down south, and as they're heading back, they hit up on the same exact locations <laughs> and like hit up on the same characters that they saw on the way down and everything. And it it was it was very pointed like that little bit by little bit. Um, I, I, and so, I mean, it's very straightforward while being pretty episodic and very encapsulated with each chapter. And for some of the chapters, I almost had little subtitles for each of them. Like one of them was definitely called, okay, this is basically the Brennan town musicians. And, 
And then I had another one that was, okay, this is basically the Brandon Town musicians again. And, so, <laughs> and, and so, I mean, you had a couple of those incidents and everything, but, um, but I mean, you have that conceit of, we're just going to go on a trip and things are going to happen. And right. also we're going to feel bad about the fact that we abandoned our owner and maybe do something nice for him. <laughs> and so that kind of gets at everything. Um, so, so, I mean, basically the plot for this book, the animals um, knowing that winter is coming are, you know, not really thrilled about the idea of um, the cold coming and the uncomfortability with that. And especially the rooster Charles, who is very unhappy having to get up every day to wake up Mr. Bean, the farmer. And he is talking with the horse, correct? He's talking with Hank, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. He's talking with Hank about stuff. And this bird pipes up and says, well, why don't you guys migrate? And Charles and Hank are like, what? And he's like, yeah, just go down to Florida. And they're both like, well, that's a great idea. Let's do that. And so Charles sets up a meeting and the animals just decide we're all going to go down to Florida. And one of the dogs sensibly says, well, we can't all go. And so they decide like who's going to go and everything. And you have your cast more or less selected at the end of that chapter. And um, off you go. And mm-hmm. yeah, I, I don't know what you guys, anything you wanted to talk about as far as like the plot in general or anything you notice within the book? Um, well, I mean, you hit on the, the first thing about Charles being the first character that's introduced and kind of the one who spearheads this whole thing. He's more or less set up to be the main character, not Freddy. Uh, <laughs> uh, he's he's uh, quite literally a hen-pecked rooster. Um, I just yeah. adore the first, like, it was within the first few pages when there's some line about, like, he wasn't gonna... He, he wasn't going to sleep back at the hen roost with, like, his wife and her eight sisters. And her eight sisters. <laughs> yeah. Just, like... And it's something that, that Brooks does throughout this book that just I just adore, where he takes, like... You know, so obviously the conceit, like in, in Charlotte's Web or any number of other, uh, um, especially classic children's, you know, material, um, the conceit is that, like, the, the animals can talk and, and have mm-hmm. sort of human-style functions, but um, he takes just enough of the animal world and combines it with just, like, he finds where on the dial the most hilarious point is and in this case it's like the most hilarious point is where you take the rooster structure where you have a or the the chicken structure rather you have a a rooster with like a bunch of female chickens um Mm -hmm. and then puts just enough humanity in them like imagine if you lived with your wife and her eight sisters and (laughs) centers his, his his storytelling right there and and what I love about his storytelling when he has moments like that, they yeah. are just brief as all get out. It's like yeah. one or two sentences, and then he's gone off on something yeah. else. And like it, a, it's, for, yeah, it, 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 he he fits it in so that it, it suits the plot that he wants to tell too. Like I'm thinking, yeah. like if you take some of this human structure in the animal kingdom too far it becomes really horrifying and he toes the line yeah. of that a little bit like 
with the spider. Really, Mr. Mr. Webb will catch a fly, and the fly's like, no, please don't eat me. And like, so that your food is talking to you and begging you not to eat it. But he uses that to say, oh, okay, I won't eat you if you do this for me. And it's causes the rescue and everything. And and that's like the line at that moment is. Most spiders would have just spiders without even thinking yeah. about it. Yeah, exactly. Mary softened Mr. Mr. Webb. And <laughs> Mary yeah. softened softened, yeah. <laughs> just like, that's actually one of my favorite things about this, because, Michael, you're right. Like, if you take that conceit too far, it becomes pretty horrifying. And it kept making me think of um, two movies that were very popular when all three of us were children, uh, Babe and mm-hmm. Chicken Run. Both of which had things that I admired about them, but I hated the way that they approached this, where it was like this, it was like this shadow argument for vegetarianism, um, you know, where it's like, well, yeah. your your chickens are sentient, so obviously they're gonna pull a great escape and try to try to get out, and like, do you really want to be eating? I don't remember the character's name. Okay, but 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 in um, all fairness, no. me that was a big fan of the Great Escape and Steve McQueen was just like, oh man, this Great Escape in the animated form. Yeah, <laughs> sure. But I, I I just hated specifically the the like I don't know it, it it took it like too far in like a like a moralistic direction. Whereas in this book, he almost takes the opposite approach in that like the animal world is freaking savage. Mm-hmm. Um, and like this is like again, Michael, you're right in that like he could have it, it could be much more savage. But like I'm trying to find it here. One of my favorite um, just exchanges, similar to to the spider and the uh, the fly. Um, oh, here. So um, it's on page 17, the beginning of chapter three. 17 in my edition, um, when Jinx, the cat, uh, one, like is asking the robin about migrating. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And he says, he says, good morning, robin. I wonder if you'd do me a little favor. And then he asks him if you, if you draw a map because robins migrate and mm-hmm. the rest of them don't. And the robin says, I don't know what made you think that, uh, basically, that I would do you a favor. I don't know I should do anything for you. You're always chasing me, and there's never a minute's peace for me or my family when you're in the barnyard, and you ate up my wife's third cousin last June. <laughs> I've totally forgotten all that. Like, in a Chicken Run-type movie, I have to imagine that they would not have touched a, a, an aspect like this. They just, nope. like, none of the animals eat each other. But here it's like, yeah, these are sentient creatures, but in order to survive, sometimes one of them eats another one. Right. Um, at, like, at the same time, it's just enough removed. Like it's it's the wife's third cousin, so there's yeah, a removal yeah, yeah. there, so you don't have to have a lot of sympathy for the bird that died. But <laughs> it, it it casts the animal world almost as like the Wild West, like oh, almost like Wild West tropes going on here, where like at least you know, and I'm not a, a Wild West historian by any means, but at least if you take from like the movies or the literature. You know, there's this very real thing where it's like, yeah, you shot my wife's third cousin. Like, why should I trade corn with you? And sometimes <laughs> if someone has a good enough reason, you do anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, like like here, where Jinx, Jinx uses his smooth tongue to just, like, rhetoric his way out of mm-hmm. um, the Robin being upset with him for eating his wife's third cousin. Mm-hmm. You know, I had no idea that Robin was any relative of your wife's, and when I saw him prowling around your nest, I thought he wanted to steal your children. It was a yeah, yeah, I shot first and asked questions later. Like, 
I guess forgive me for trying to save your kids. You know, it's, it's just like... <laughs> And and I mean that's something that comes up all over the place in this book. This yeah. like unprecedented camaraderie that's like these animals should not get along, but in order but to do. allow the adventure to go on and yeah. in order to allow the opportunities to happen, then they put aside their differences. I mean, for instance, uh going back to Jinx, I mean Jinx agreeing that he won't go after the mice and everything. <laughs> um and and um, and I mean that, and I mean, we talked about the flies with web and I mean, there are a couple of other instances where it's like these animals shouldn't get along, but for the, for the sake of the plot or whatever the moment happens to be, they put aside their differences in order to, yeah. you know, move forward. Um, Even within the, you know, the same species where like the first conflict that the animals meet along their road is this man and his son who try to kidnap them and they quite violently chase them off. <laughs> but yeah. when they come back they come with a dog and this dog starts chasing them and rather than turn into a big fight between animals you know the violence that they, the animals showed to the humans is not repeated against this dog instead they talk to the dog and they're like why are you why are you attacking us why are you doing this like, well i have to or my master will beat me so like okay immediate sympathy for this guy all right we'll come to our side and we'll we'll take care of it and it seems like obvious of course the reasoning makes yeah. make perfect sense here that, that yeah of course it would work out that way i mean it's it's a it's a funny sort of kid animal logic that goes into yeah. how this plot is allowed to work um so um, oh, i i feel like the scene with the dog specifically um excuse me since again this book is obviously a masterpiece of realism um <laughs> is almost the most realistic in a weird way. I think Brooks even has like a an author insert line where he's like, everyone thinks dogs will stay loyal, but like they'll only stay loyal so long as they don't see an alternative or some, some, something like that. I want. Yeah, I remember something like that. Um, and like if you took that line out and just put it on a plaque or something as an aphorism, it would it would almost work by itself mm -hmm. as like commentary. Um, and it, I feel like it's, I feel like it's true to some extent. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things that, I mean, you touched on very briefly without maybe even thinking about it is the animals make peace with each other. And part of it is that they talk to each other. Mm -hmm. mm. Let's talk about communication for a second. This is something that comes up with every book or movie where you have animals talking. Who can hear them? Yeah, who yes. them? Okay, this is legitimately a question I wanted to ask you guys, so I'm glad you brought it up, Josiah. Like, who who can hear them? Mm -hmm. Really yeah. interested in what because, you guys think of this. Because, I mean, throughout the course of the book, then it's this thing that news has spread about these animals that are migrating south. And how? How is it spread? How? how does Mr. Bean come to this conclusion? Oh, they must have migrated. I'm not worried. They'll yeah. be back. Yeah, like day, one, he's, day one, he's like, someone might have stolen them. And then after a two, day, two or three days, he settles on, no, they just migrated south. Yep. <laughs> and Presumably and because he, he was getting information he, back? Not only does he believe this, he believes it well enough to tell people. Because like yeah. when they get to D.C., then the one congressman is like one of my constituents told me that his animals were migrating south yeah, and hints right. at some, that's some of where that communication came from was from mr bean telling his senator who then 
communicated into Washington where the animals went and met the president and everything. But um, yeah, there was something that happened, uh, listeners. (laughs) (laughs) I I was like on page 60 and like he's already peaked. He's met the president. Yeah. It's done. It's done. And there's so there is an interest because like there are a few key points. One of them is meeting the president. One of them is when they have their first animal meeting. Um, mm-hmm. like right at the beginning when they decide to migrate and they they hash out like, well, okay, all of us can't migrate because poor Mr. Bean would starve. So like, how many dogs and cows do we need to leave behind and blah blah blah. Um, and and at some point. Uh, Mr. Bean just like pokes his head in like the the camp counselor, um, yeah. you know, to the to the kids tent. Just like all you animals, go to bed. <laughs> um, yeah. Which, if it, like if you pay attention to exactly how it's written, uh, it strongly implies that Mr. Bean can just hear them because partly because of his timing and just partly because like he knows they're having a meeting enough to tell him to go to bed but like never is that explicitly stated no no it's never explicitly stated that any human being understands animals yeah and like again with the with the with the you know going to washington and stuff like uh they have a parade and they they like have speeches and you know again like it's if you weren't paying super close attention um you'd almost think like, oh, well, yeah, so this is just a world where animals talk and, like, this is not a big a big deal. Like, the migration is the thing. But again, but there's more to it. stated that anyone can hear them. Like, yeah, and in uh, fact, there are so oh, many times when I mean... Yeah. There's so never, like, times. to the president and, like, the president heard it and responded. There's nothing like that. Right. It's just it gets right up to the edge of that and but never actually goes there. Yeah, yeah. Well I mean they shake hands with the president. <laughs> like it's yes. stated he yes. shakes the hands of Eek and Quick and the mice and all right. that, you know. That like so I mean they're behaving in human ways with humans, just like they never explicitly cr- cross that line of being able to talk to one another. Unlike like in Charlotte's Web, you know, Fern can right. understand all the animals in the barn, and that's explicitly right. stated that you know, the adults can't, but the kids can or something. But you, you uh, think about that, like, a dog can be trained to shake hands. Sure. Like, why couldn't a cow or a mouse or, like, it's not, it's left, I think, intentionally probably amb- ambiguous about, like, mm-hmm. are they shaking hands like a human? Are they, like, nodding heads or making other human body language gestures or no? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, throughout the book, then there are no parts where conversation explicitly happens between human and animal. They talk during times when yeah. they are with other people and the animals carry on conversation and are able to communicate with the humans what they are talking about and everything. I think in particular yeah. about toward the end when, you know, the dog motions toward the alarm clock and everything. Yeah. It's not until that actual point that it's explicitly clear that humans can't, or at least these humans can't understand the animals Um, because the dog has to do that. And again, if you were like assuming that they could talk all along that point, almost at the end of the book, like makes you like, wait, did Walter Brooks forget what he wrote or is something else going on here? Mm -hmm. The, the, 
I mean, the only time, and you pointed toward the beginning of the book when Mr. Bean comes in the barn and just says, everybody go to bed. It's almost mm-hmm. like this isn't out of the ordinary. It's, yeah. It's almost like this is a thing that happens. Yeah, my animals get together and talk things out occasionally. And I do need to, you know, lay down the law a little bit. But he doesn't right. have to go out <laughs> Right. Right. Um, even though he still threatens to fricassee the, the rooster. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, that, that was the other thing I actually thought I wanted to bring up about how savage this world is. Because, like, <laughs> um, and it does, it takes slightly different tones depending on whether you do assume that Mr. Bean at least can, like, knows that the animals can understand him at, like, a, a roughly human level or not. Because um, you could even assume that without assuming that, that like, he can actually understand them speak, like, understand their speech, right? Um, but yeah, just just the fact that it opens with his roosters getting up in the morning because he's afraid of getting literally spit-roasted and, you know, served with someone at dinner, like... Right. It's, it's just not a tone any children's book written in the last 50 years would be allowed to well, take. Well, and I mean, toward the end of the book, when... The they meet the mustached man for the last time, and yeah. he captures Charles. And Charles is just done. He yeah. he is mortified at the fact that this is his end. That he's going to be fricasseed and eaten by a stranger. Yeah, right. Just a level of existential dread that, like, again, <laughs> I don't think would be allowed into any animal animal talking animal book. You know, written in the last fifty years, easily. Sure. Sure. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of that. So, I mean, just the, the, the threat of demise is, is very real. You've got the meeting with the alligators when the alligators threaten to eat them all. And it like, rather than just chomp on them, they, you know, they, they claim the right of parlay. Mm-hmm. Essentially, they can father all the alligators, yeah. and which yeah. like, that whole like the, the animals have societal structures, um, yeah, in different places too. Like this one is very much definitely a patriarchal society where you've got this grandfather of all the al- alligators who commands them all uh, and and directs them, whereas you know it's more of a, a democracy in the barn. Um, yeah, the man, you yeah. know. Yeah. And like, I, I mean, I don't know that that's at the heart of everything, but, you know, it's it's part of what we're talking about with communication, that 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 ties in the, the, the structure of everything. Well, and then you've got the ants um, that show up too that um, Mr. Webb talks to, uh, talks to them and, and talks about their their society briefly as well, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, with that, um, the 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 idea that these alligators are going to eat them. But the, again, they use their mouths to escape. They use their words um, and, and set up this this condition that if this is met, they can all live. And it's a miracle condition for uh, Charles to, to fly over to a tree and to, so that he can prove that he can fly home and tell the president that these alligators have eaten these migrating animals. Um, and, which, and I love the fact that when he miraculously does it, then the alligators are just like, Oh yeah, we were gonna eat you as a joke. <laughs> joke. We were joking. We made the whole thing up. Yeah. Um, um yeah. I do while we're on the topic of the alligators, uh yeah. 
And I don't want to harp on this very much, but if you were looking for sort of a, okay, this was written 100 years ago, problematic section of this book, um, it would be the alligators because they're pretty clearly coded as like Native Americans. Um, okay. And, um, and yeah. you know, like how offended you are by that is going to vary from person to person. And uh, it's, it's maybe not like, maybe if you were writing this book today, you wouldn't like make up an alligator tribal society that was like so close to being the, you know, Seminole Indians. Mm-hmm. How, um, how sure are you on that interpretation or is that just your own thing? It, it's definitely my own reading, but um I, I feel pretty confident about it. I could like, back to it, I can see it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, like the, the and, and partly it's it's less me reading history and more me reading adventure stories from this period or slightly earlier. Um, because like you you have these like like H. Ryder Haggard, for example, wrote, you know, King Solomon's Mines or whatever. You have all these these adventure stories where people go into like darker untamed parts of uh the world um usually it's like darkest africa of course like anywhere where like uh, conceivable at at a given point in history that there's like oh maybe atlantis is here because we haven't explored this very well or whatever um and there's always some like the great chief whatever and like the grandfather of all the alligators definitely has echoes of that um, that kind of thing. Um, but I will say I find it very, almost an interestingly light touch for the period because like I was going into this chapter ready to cringe pretty hard if, if, cause I, I remembered it, but I didn't remember it super well. And I was like, please tell me the alligators don't like speak in some kind of like pigeon English, you know, like, <laughs> we eat them big animals or anything and there's nothing like that in there um and in fact the alligators are like very uh very smart and very like oh yes very sophisticated oh, yeah. yeah even I, wild I, savage you uh-huh. know it's yeah. it's almost like the noble savage sort of trope yeah yeah and i mean one like potentially problematic like condescending trope but yeah. um it's it's definitely not like it, it avoids a lot of the pitfalls that that this a scene like this could easily have sure. in, in the period. And and I mean, when he brings up how old he is, which uh-huh. at yeah. first when he's like, "I'm 800 years old," then it's like, "Okay, he's he's you know exaggerating." And then you know he tells the stories to back it up, and he's like, "I was here when Ponce de Leon came here," and I also. Um, Whose boot did he eat? Uh, one, one Balboa's. Balboa's. Oh, boot. Balboa, that's right. Yes, that's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I yeah, just love. That's wonderful. Um, and it's Spanish yeah. leather. I chewed on that for half a day. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, uh, that, yeah. It almost gets towards like a Tolkien-esque, like he's almost an ant or an elf or something. Kind of, like, yeah. Creatures uh-huh. whose time scales is like so vastly you know, greater than humanities. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the, uh, I, I don't know if alligators live that long. I know that there are. Oh, giant no. I don't know. no, no, okay. I, was no. Gonna say, I know there are giant do not live that long. 
okay. 50 years. I, I grew up in Florida. So. Okay, very, very good. So I know. I know that there are giant tortoises in certain parts of the, of the world, I want to say Florida, um, that have like musket balls still lodged in their shells, like living tortoises that have, mm-hmm. you know... Yeah, tortoises tortoises live that long. And I mean, there are tortoises in Florida. I'm not sure if they have that old of tortoises in, in Florida. I know. Uh, they're just sort of like some tortoises that we know lived 400 years ago, partly because we've recovered musket balls and, and arrowheads and stuff that old from them. Mm-hmm. Um, which I, it just makes me wonder if, if Walter Brooks was like, taking that idea and then combining it with like, obviously tortoises are not going to be a good like enemy or whatever to get away from. Sure. Well, it seems rational to think that, you know, this alligator that lives underwater, it's kind of mysterious. It it could live that long. Sure. Why not? I'll believe that. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I promise you that there are like tall tales from Florida's history. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Alligators happening. Mm hmm. Definitely, definitely. But I mean, like this, the the animals, like something else that he gets with these animals, like beyond just the society of them, he gets the personalities of these different species uh, yeah. in really interesting ways. The, the one that sticks out in my mind is Jinx the cat, who is such a cat. There, there's right. the episode where where Jinx is in the in the the little girl's um, yeah. stroller for her doll and like it falls down it, it rolls down the hill and crashes into into the water and the the description i was trying to find it in here is jinx uh climbs out and then just kind of walks nonchalantly on like meant for that to happen you know yeah it's, yeah it's he even very cat like yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I had that under control the whole time <laughs> yeah right <laughs> like that my, my mom you know grew up with cats like she's always been a huge cat person and like that interaction between that little girl and jinx jinx uh mm-hmm. honestly reminds me of like stories my mom has told about her, her like she had a cat who was a very like she described him as a john wayne cat and she used to like dress him up in like her doll clothes and like put him in the stroller and sure. he would like just barely put up with it for a while and then like you know, she'd look away for a second and he'd like dip out and just sprint away or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I did find it. It's on page 91. As soon as Jinx saw his friends, he tried to look as if he had done it on purpose. Yes. <laughs> um, one of, so one of the plot holes, because there are like one or two little plot holes in this that I'm like, yeah, okay, this actually can resolve. Let's go. Um, let's do it. Well, I don't know. Plot hole might be a strong word. But at the end of the oh, book, are we to assume that um, Jinx is still half red? He was getting scrubbed, wasn't he? No, By the people he, hid. he hid from the scrubbing. Oh, that's right. That's he right. Did get yeah. He hid from the so, scrubbing. Yeah. When he shows up on Mr. Bean's farm again, is he still half red? Because all the other animals got cleaned. Probably. Yeah. yeah. He probably, probably just passed it off like, what do you mean? I was always this way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> It's part of my heritage. Stop staring. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, Well, 
Michael, you started quoting the book. One of the things that I started doing, I was about 50 or 60 pages in. I don't usually mark my books up. Um, Mike Lilienthal, you're, you're, you know, definitely. Um, chronic marker. You are a chronic marker. You are on Interpol's list of people who abuse their books. Yeah, I had. <laughs> I roomed with you for a year in college, and I had a couch, an old couch that I got rid of right after college because it was a nasty college couch. But that thing was marked up with ink stains because you would have a pen out when you read books, and you would fall asleep, and your pen would go (laughs) up against the couch, and it would leave ink stains. There were multiple stains on that couch from ink. We have a few sets of sheets that also have ink stains in them. (laughs) Sheets. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> but, but eventually it got to a point with like the like witty observations and one liners that I was like, OK, I'm going to start marking these up just so that I'm able to come back to them. Um, mm-hmm. I I wanted to kind of share some of my favorites. Um, Love it. So yeah. starting out, one of the first ones that I was like, OK, this is really fun is when Mr. and Mrs. Webb get swept downstream mm. and um, and Mr. Webb comes up with the idea of, well, they mentioned they wanted to go over the bridge later. And so why don't we get out of the river at the bridge and meet them there? And Mrs. Webb compliments him and says, you've got a head on you, Webb. I always knew you did have in spite of what my father said about you before we were married. <laughs> I know what he said well enough without you repeating it every five minutes, grumbled Mr. Webb. He said I or he said I didn't have gumption enough to catch a lame fly without wings. That's what you're thinking about, I suppose. <laughs> no, said Mrs. Webb. I was thinking about the time he said you'd never be hanged for your beauty and you ought to. That's enough, said Mr. Webb crossly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's all we get of that whole explosion. <laughs> Which implies it's it's another one of those things. Um I forget which of you, one of you mentioned earlier about like Brooks just sometimes dropping these things in and just like giving you just that much and then just going on to the next thing, never yep. really coming back to it. Um, and, and that's another one because that implies so much about like spider culture, like you know, which like is is definitely just lifted from human culture. Yeah, so but it does because it's, it's like you could leave that out of the book completely, and you'd just be implying that they're like talking spiders and they. Mm-hmm. other animals, yeah. and sometimes they have to get right up in their ears because their voices aren't very loud. But it's a whole other dimension to like imply that it's that like they have these long-standing grudges and they like meet each other's parents before they go into what is apparently a monogamous marriage. Um, <laughs> well, it's it's one of those things too that like this is a joke that I think most kids you know the target audience quote unquote for this book wouldn't necessarily get this is a joke for the parents who are reading these books yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, and, um, and i mean i i love the fact that dog the corner for just one second i remember reading this exchange as a kid and just being like man what a jerk <laughs> i'm a jerk <laughs> and just going out like not understanding anything about it being a joke, just thinking it was like a sad reflection about Mr. and Mrs. Webb and their marriage. <laughs> well, and what I love so much about that exchange in particular is up until that point in the book, 
you knew that they were there and you knew that they were, you know, spiders that had very, very small voices because they were spiders and that they were along for the ride, but you hadn't got to know them at all. And this is like the first yeah. time the window of personality has opened up on them. And it yeah. was a great moment. Well, um, the spiders are, are revealed kind of gradually too. You don't find out their first names. I don't think until much later in the book when they, yeah, uh, yeah. Emeline and their and, names are like um, really unique. I can't even remember them. Emeline uh, and uh, Emily. what was his name? It started with an H, I want to say. Uh, yeah, I can't remember. Uh, Horatio? Something like that? Um, I'm not sure. Like, I don't mean unique. I mean, like, they're, like, yeah. quite they're specific. They're not, specific. like, specific. Yeah, I remember Emmeline and, yep. shoot, I would have to find that page. I have a couple. I have a couple of my fingers in pages because I want to read more stuff. Yeah, that's fine. You can, you can, we don't so, need to dwell on this. <laughs> so, Mister. So, another Mister. Web encounter. Um, you were talking about when he meets the ants, and this yes. this this little paragraph is very characteristic about a lot of the interactions when you meet a new animal, and he wants to you know tell you why they act the way they do. And this one is um, so. Um, Mr. Webb simply politely says good morning and starts asking him a question about fly catching. Um, Mr. Webb is asking this ant and the paragraph goes, now almost always you speak to an ant no matter how, or if you speak to an ant no matter how pleasantly, it will walk right by without answering. Ants do this because they are always busy and they think conversation is a waste of time. But Mr. Webb was a fine looking spider and the ant was rather flattered at being spoken to by him. <laughs> it's just so wonderful. Like, he didn't need that exchange at all. He could have just had the ant respond. Mm -hmm. But he had to explain yeah. why the ant wouldn't, but did. <laughs> just among, among many other wonderful things about it is just such an assumption of authority on Brooks's part. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. like yes. Explaining to you why these animals do these, like, he, it's, he, it's this authorial, authorial voice that knows everything about this world that it's writing about. Right, right. He knows all about all these animals, which, you know, to a kid is great because kids want to know everything about animals. Yeah. yeah so I, he's got all the answers for you. Yeah, to <laughs> that, Brooks is like, oh man, he knows everything. Exactly. <laughs> um, the the next really great great one that I've marked up was the incident with the um, two guys with the dirty boots. Yes. Oh yes, where they're playing oh, yeah. I love that chapter, and I mean throughout that chapter, I mean they have um, they capture they capture the horse and the cow, uh, yeah. Hank and Mrs. Um, oh man, I'm blinking. Mrs. Wiggins? Mrs. Wiggins? Yeah, Mrs. Wiggins. Yeah. yeah, they captured those two, and then they, you know, hatch a plan to get them out of the barn and everything. But yeah. um, they they come chase the two guys come chasing after them, and they have you know their misadventure and everything. But there's this paragraph of poetic comeuppance with the whole thing, where and it goes like this: and when they got in the house, they were angrier still. For there was the part cheesy board on the floor, and the part cheesy men had rolled off into the corners and under the stove and behind things. If the floor had been clean, it wouldn't have been so bad. But it was terribly dirty because they never wiped their boots on the mat when they came in, and so it was almost impossible to find the men. Instead, there were three that were never found, 
And so they could never play Parcheesi anymore at all. <laughs> and, and I mean, I remember as I was reading that chapter that he made a point of saying, and they went into the house without wiping their boots. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. What terrible people to not wipe their boots they as they went into the house. Boots. Yeah. That's yeah, also right. a chapter where, like, uh, you know, Freddie doesn't shine too much in this book. We've already established that it's not all that much about Freddie, but you get hints at his personality. He yeah. keeps being brought up as being a very clever pig. You know, he writes their their song that they sing as they're walking down. And so, like, you get a hint of this idea that Fred, Freddie is important, even if it didn't say Freddie on the cover. You would get this mm -hmm. hint that Freddie is important. Uh, and then in this chapter, with this this episode with the men with dirty boots, he's commenting on their Parcheesi game. I'm like, oh, no, he should have done this. Yeah, he should have yeah. voted that way. No, lost the game. <laughs> yeah. Lost it. He would have had it. <laughs> yep. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's great. Um, another slightly insignificant one was um, when Alice the Duck sneezed. <laughs> he's like standing next to a tramp and she sneezes and um and brooks writes this a duck doesn't sneeze very loud but tramps don't sleep very soundly and this tramp was wide awake in an instant it was just a sentence that you know just caught me like oh that's fun <laughs> i admit that while you were reading some of these i was uh googling briefly to try to figure out if there's a Freddy the Pig page a day calendar. Um, oh, oh, that would be so good. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be one, but I, if you've proven nothing else with this particular segment, uh, you've proven that, like, there could be one. Mm -hmm. there, there is a, a, a Freddy fan club. Is there really? Yeah, freddythepig.com. They're friends of Freddy. Mm. Uh, Very nice. So. Um the next one I had was um, the one of the Brennan Town musicians chap er, chapters, um, where it's the burglars in the hut, and um, and they make or the animals outside the window there looking at the burglars separating out their loot. Um, they make a noise. In fact, it's Jinx that makes the noise when he you know swats at the moth that was really rude to him, and. Um, and they hit their heads and blow out the lantern all at once. Mm -hmm. And they're hurrying to get this lantern lit. The two small burglars, Ed and Bill, were in a corner trying to open one of the dark lanterns so they could light it. But as they never used the lanterns, but only carried them to show that they were burglars, they just didn't know that they were. <laughs> It's like, what? <laughs> no, they carried them to show that they were burglars. Why do we have lanterns? Because that's what burglars do. We have lanterns. We're carrying these because we're burglars. Is one of many things that we've at least hinted at um, uh, before, but uh, just that Walter Brooks clearly... Well, Michael basically said this in, in uh, relation to the whole ant psychology passage, but um, Walter Brooks clearly just has the mind of a child just like yeah. completely figured out. Um, which I say that in this connection because uh, as the two of you um, may may or may not know, I have historically uh, been a fan of wearing hats. Um, what? Yeah. I, uh, 
I don't talk about this very often because I get made fun of, but I was wearing fedoras before the internet ruined fedoras for everyone. Um, and once that happened, I, uh, switched over for a while to bowler hats, uh, like your, you know, your 1920s, uh, uh, dome top mm-hmm. deal. Um, and this is especially when I was in college when, like, everyone makes, uh, fashion choices that are forgivable when you're 21. Um, I don't know about that, but yeah, thank you. Go on. (laughs) So, uh, and also my brother found for like a birthday or something, found me a true antique bowler that was also large enough to fit my gigantic head. Um, so I obviously wasn't going to not wear that, but anyway, I remember walking through the streets of, of my hometown, a small town in Wisconsin, um, wearing my bowler hat and like, you know, suit coat or whatever. Um, and I walked past the small small boy and his his mother, and um, you know we walked past each other, and I maybe smiled at them or whatever. And then when they hit, when they were behind me, walking away from me, I heard the boy say to his mother, "Mom, that was a robber." <laughs> and she was like, "How do you know that?" And he was like, "He was wearing the hat that robbers wear." <laughs> which is just one of my favorite like interactions with a child that i've ever had oh man i that's great yeah but but it's like it's the same as this passage you know they they were carrying lanterns because they were burglars like it's that like child logic that Mm -hmm. yeah do we know how to use them nope but we have them. We got them. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's, it's the same logic by which I assume any bank robbers in the Freddy the Pig universe like carry stacks that have dollar signs on them. Of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I could go on for a long time with a lot of these passages like this, like these like little trite one to two liners, and we've already referenced a couple before I even got to that one. I'll I'll end yeah. with this one. Um, this one was um, when when they you know get all the loot from the burglars and then return all the loot to everybody and mm-hmm. they meet Aunt Etta who is very well read and because she was well read she knew immediately who these animals were they were the animals mm-hmm. that were migrating and so because she spent all day reading the newspaper yes she did spend all day oh, reading the newspaper and. At the end of that chapter, then it says, Then when the animals had all been given the things they liked best to eat, she sat down on the porch and told her niece everything she had read in the paper for the last six weeks. (laughs) Right. And it's just like, it establishes that relationship in so little words of just, you're a bookworm that just likes to talk about what you read, and the niece just sits there and listens. (laughs) Yeah, no, I... Um, and I know I said we weren't going to rip into anybody's moms on this podcast, but I did read that sentence and say, oh, it's a conversation with my mother. Um, <laughs> and it's just something so, like, universal and and recognizable that, like, again, like, you'd almost not know this book was written 100 years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's very familiar. There there are one or two things in the book that definitely give it that element of age. Um, oh, sure. 
and oh, for sure. one of them is uh so i actually had to look up what this thing was the automobile that they recover oh, oh. the phaeton the phaeton yeah, i that was that was a word that i was you know not familiar with and i looked it up and i was like oh okay that's what that is <laughs> yeah one thing and this is something I bring up with no segue at all, but that I did want to mention. So just just regarding the structure of this book. So we, we talked a little bit about that already. You know, the it's it's very episodic. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of the chapters could almost stand alone as like short stories, or at least with a very little setup, you could, you know, chop them out and publish them as short stories or whatever. Um, but being an episodic... Uh, narrative that takes place as a road trip it actually has a really impressive literary pedigree um, stretching back to the book that some many in fact uh, critics consider the first novel um, Don Quixote mm -hmm. uh, Don Quixote is also a very episodic narrative um, that's comedic that exaggerates, you know, on intentionally and, and has non-realistic elements that is a road trip. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of the classic, even before Don Quixote, Gargantua and Pantagruel sometimes gets considered the first novel, which is again, a comedic satirical road trip book. Um, you fast forward, like Tom Jones is, a, is, is maybe the next classic novel after Don Quixote or certainly one of them. Um, it's a comedic narrative that is that is a and fairly episodic and, and is a road trip, mm -hmm. uh, you know. And, and uh, uh, those are the ones I can think of off the top of my head. But uh, it's interesting to me that this this book that I dismissed at the age of thirteen is like whatever. This is this is clearly garbage. Like has a, like there's the category is called picaresque novels. That's just like an episodic. Mm -hmm. um, um, novel that I think usually has to have like a trip of some kind. Um yeah. Oh, right. No, I didn't I don't really have any like point to tie that into, but I did I did just want to mention that like um you know one might be tempted to dismiss the structure of this novel as just like someone who's like learning how to write or or isn't oh, very sure. yet, but um it definitely has its antecedents. Mm -hmm. Don Quixote is one of those books that um, is just really big and really intimidating for someone like me to take on. If only there was like a podcast or something where two individuals would, you know, read the book and talk over it and tell me all of the great benefits of reading it. And if only that podcast were actually helpful. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was more like. <laughs> Um, I also, if only as I recall, the hosts of that podcast didn't spend half of the airtime telling you not to read it. <laughs> and, and granted, Donkey Kong really was like a happen. four episode one, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, it was. Four yeah. hours, four hours or more. On four hours. So two hours of you guys saying, don't read it. <laughs> <laughs> and two other hours of us talking about how it's brilliant. But you know, yeah. balance in all things. Mm. 
Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I did. I mean, the structure is interesting. You've got it's almost set up to to be the sort of thing where Charles learns to appreciate the life he has, but he learns that in like chapter three. Yeah. <laughs> and then the migration continues and the the issue of him having to wake up so early is resolved by the alarm clock that uh, one of the dogs yeah, out. Mm-hmm. If, if he wasn't one where he learned to appreciate the life he had he would like go back to his post at the end of the book and like right. wake up mr mr bean every morning but happily instead of grumpily but no he, mm-hmm. he uses modern technology right. yeah of course that problem and it is cool how, I mean, you have that problem that's presented right at the beginning before you even have the desire to go south or anything that, I mean, it, it's all Charles just complaining about how I have to get up early. Yep. And to have the novel finish with that being resolved and, you know, Mr. Bean himself, which that speech at the end of the book that he gives is just great. It, it's a little bit heartwarming. But, I mean, among all the things he says in that speech, he says, since I have an alarm clock, Charles may sleep as late as he wishes in the morning. And, you know, includes that, you know, in his big decree of all the things that are going to change now that he has money to, you know, provide the animals with the comfort that they deserve. Mm -hmm. Probably, but, like, and I don't have a problem with that, but I almost feel like that speech is out of character for him. Um, (laughs) Except in as much as, like, we don't get that much of his character, so maybe we don't even know enough it's about true. him. It's true. Yeah. It's out of character, but, like, for the for the entire rest of the novel, he comes off as just this very sort of grump, not grumpy, maybe grumpy, well, but definitely sort of, just a very farmer, farmer type. <laughs> like, you wouldn't expect him to communicate anything more or longer than, like, whatever was necessary to get the job done. Well, I liked your analogy earlier of him being kind of the camp counselor to these <laughs> animals because that's essentially the character that I got out of mm-hmm. reading him, that he was the camp counselor. And this speech really kind of does fit in with that sort of idea that he, you know, he was worried about his animals as they all traveled. Now they're all home. He's happy to have them back. He appreciates them more. And so, yeah, he's going to make this speech. Uh, Imagine a camp counselor who has a great big gray beard. Uh, yeah. I, I love I love the description at the beginning of how nobody has seen him without a beard. Nobody yeah. knows what his face looks like, <laughs> including his wife. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. But yeah, then the the book ends though with uh, Freddie getting the last word, which again gives the, mm-hmm. this hint in the first book in the series to Freddie's importance. Um, but uh, everyone else is asleep. Freddy's just talking to himself. He goes out on his own in the moonlight. And he says, after all, it's exciting to travel and have adventures, but there's no place like home. And then he goes to his pig pen and makes up this, this song that ends it. And he sings this, this lovely song about having fun adventures, but ending back at home. And mm-hmm. It's just wonderful. I, I love the little songs throughout the book that he yeah. has. And I mean, again, if you want to talk about being Tolkien-esque, that's... Oh, yeah, having yeah. travel songs. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and this came out before The Hobbit did, so we can it only did. assume that... Um, uh, he, he, was, he was pulling a Brooks. That's what he was doing. Yeah. Tolkien was influenced by, by Brooks. Mm-hmm. I pretty the biggest travel songs, clearly. 
Yep, obviously. <laughs> There's definitely not a common ancestor to both. No. <laughs> well, especially with uh, with the grandfather of all the alligators already being an, an aunt or an elf or something. Like, clearly yeah. Tolkien stole a bunch of his best ideas from Walter R. Brooks. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> I mean, it's called Two and Again, right? What was uh, the yeah, Hobbit? Yeah. They're back again. Yeah. <laughs> they're back again, yeah. There we go. Yeah, okay. Well, um, we have our actual name for the podcast now. This is now the Exposing Tolkien podcast. Exposing Tolkien. <laughs> the fraud he was. Uh, Tolkien in love. Tolkien in love. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, good. Well, uh, on that note, is that where we're ending the podcast? <laughs> I think it. I think it must be. So, um, so where are we headed from here, guys? Well, Freddie went south. He went to Florida. Next, Freddie goes to the North Pole. He goes north. Yeah. Okay. That's book two in the series. Now, now it's interesting that you had mentioned that. Um, again, historically, uh, what was one of the things that you said? I think you said something about the North Pole. Yeah, the, the first claimed yeah. uh, flight over the North Pole occurred in um, 1927 or 1926. One, one of the years around here. Now, that claim was contested. Um, or has been contested. It's never been proved. It's never been actually disproved, but there's a lot of debate over it. But shortly oh, after okay. that, there was another flight that um, went over the North Pole and was documented. But, but there yeah, really would have been a lot of buzz regarding that. Definitely. definitely. Yeah. The North Pole was probably in the minds of people at this time. Mm. This is conversation that it's great for us to have now instead of next week when we actually That's talk right. about the book. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So... Yeah, so I guess next time it'll be uh, Freddy Goes to the North Pole, whenever, whenever you get that. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, was there... I, I already kind of alluded to the commercial for your guys' other podcast, but did oh, you guys sure. want to talk a little bit more about what you do in your other thing? We talk about books and not yeah. about Scotch. Talk about books. No, you don't talk about Scotch. <laughs> <laughs> no one talks about the Scotch. Nope. Very important. I'm glad we didn't have that rule here tonight because right. this is a rule-free podcast. You can do whatever you want. You can <laughs> rule. talk about vampires. You can, you know, talk about your scotch. We can make fun of each other's moms. We can do whatever we want. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, but we, we are free, but that doesn't mean we're free from consequences, and I will duel anyone except myself who gets at my mom, so... Just throwing that gauntlet down. Well, we know where where it is. So, Good. when we Good. when we come back over where we've been, we'll find it again. Um, exactly. Yes. Yeah. We talk about books in Michael and Ethan in a room with Scotch, and not in quite this format. I guess similar in some ways, but yeah, we talk about themes and stuff. Yeah. Um, I would say, if anything. Less structured. Less structured than this. <laughs> yeah, that seems to be quite a feat. I mean, I yeah. I already felt that this was a bit scattered. <laughs> yeah. Well, you clearly haven't listened to Michael and Ethan in a room with Scotch, even the episodes you're on. Oh, I have, <laughs> but I've just you know I'm on the listening end of things and. Um, for me, it's just, you know, a conversation with my friends that I'm not actually able to be a part of. So, 
<laughs> down here in the bottom of the dirt, things look very different. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 Okay. Um, anything else that we need to cover or talk about? I don't think so. All right. Well, until next time, listeners, uh, this is Josiah Willits. And Michael Lilienthal. And Ethan Bartlett. And have a good day. And where do I hit the stop recording button? and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.